everyone, and welcome to episode 31 of the Auto Movie Podcast, where myself and co-host Martin Spain talk about cars and films and TV programs and all that stuff that we love and watch far too much of. Yes, far too much, <laughs> especially this week, for reasons we'll come on to later. Uh, this is episode 31. We have broached 30 episodes and are carrying on a pace on our way to 50, uh, where we might have some kind of little celebration. But in the meantime, Chris is going to talk about tedious people on electric bikes, right? <laughs> That's not the official slogan of the uh, series. <laughs> to be fair, uh, and I should add, we're going to be talking about Long Way Up on Apple TV+. Plus. I've seen the trailer for this on the front of lots of YouTube things, because I watch a lot of YouTube, and... I'm actually kind of tempted to watch this more so than I ever was with long way sideways, long way down, <laughs> long way back. I've never felt the urge to watch them. There's something about the fact that it's bikes, motorbikes mm. specifically, uh, that just turned me off for reasons I cannot articulate. But I am kind of curious and I still have the remnants of my free for buying an iPhone Apple TV Plus subscription uh, <laughs> so maybe I'll give this a watch but you've been watching it so talk to me about the show so as, as you say you cannot move online without seeing a trailer for it Bellstaff are Bellstaff have an odd relationship with it because they actually have a credit before the title card and they're flogging 60 quid t-shirts to try and pay for their involvement. Um, so, Long Way Round, the famous series from nearly like 12, 13 years ago now, I think. Charlie Borman, Ewan McGregor, and a support crew go the Long Way Round sets London to New York through Mongolia and Russia and Siberia and, and the Long Way Round. If you like that series, and I do, if you have watched it multiple times, as I have... This is like slipping into a comfy pair of old slippers. So this is super nostalgia. So to take your 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 slipper analogy, this is basically a bit whiffy and overly warm once you've been <laughs> wearing it for a while. I don't know what your slippers are like. Pretty, um, pretty ruined, if I'm honest. <laughs> the nostalgia, you're absolutely right. The opening script that they use is exactly the same script that they used on long way around it is genuinely it's ewan and charlie they've got claudia the cameraman it's dave and the other bloke whose name i've forgotten you're just saying words now you're just saying names you it's, could be saying anything it's so much of the old team that are all brought back together to do it it feels so much like the old one except if you watch the old series now They've got below SD cam, helmet cams and stuff, and now it's all glorious 4K, HDR, looks beautiful. Now, the thing with Long Way Up is it's, I think, 12,000 miles from the southern tip of Argentina, the bit Top Gear couldn't get to, all the way up to Los Angeles. And they've gone, let's do it on electric motorcycles. Rural Patagonia is not an area that you would really want to be looking for a charge. So they've got really long extension cables, like really long. Well. Do they have a diesel jenny that they just pop the bikes on after they've finished for the night? Funny you should say that. <laughs> well, there's a couple of things. So they go to Harley-Davidson. Harley-Davidson have these electric bikes and they build them to bespoke prototype off-road variants of these bikes. 
So rather than everyone going out and buying GS1500s or whatever the old BMWs were, these will now be the ones to get. In addition to that, the support pickup trucks are from a company called Rivian, who I'd never heard of. They provide prototypes number one and two to the production to do this whole trip. So we've got two prototype bikes. We've got two prototype electric trucks. In addition to that, Rivian say, we will put chargers along the route that you're going and they'll kind of be left there like a legacy, but you can charge and then they'll be left behind for other people to use in the future because, you know, rural Argentina is awash with electric vehicles. This may sound like a stupid question. Is the electrical infrastructure in rural Argentina actually in a fit state to support the kind of high drain charging that electric vehicles and, you know, charging points produce? No. So how, for all that Rivian are going, hey, we're just going to leave this charger here, is it not going to break within minutes of them leaving and (laughs) never work again? So... There's a couple of different things. So, so there's, they, they put in a, a route of charges and they're proper like bolt to the wall, fused off, all that sort of thing. In addition to that, they try and charge, particularly the bikes, because you don't really see the, the, the pickups so much. They try and charge the bikes in hotels and they like plug the bikes in and sort of they'll be sitting around talking suddenly the lights will go off and the bikes have blown the the chargers in some rural hotel yeah. or something I, it was going to be um, one the the thing i wondered was whether or not the infrastructure out there is is capable of supporting the kind of loads that evs will put on yeah so i, I think one thing that they did that was very brave they, they they start the journey in the worst possible circumstances because if you're in la where it's warm and there is plentiful electricity, and then you head south, that's quite an easy way of doing it. They do exactly the opposite. So they start at the very, very tip of Argentina or Chile, whichever one it is, in winter when the batteries are kind of suffering at their most. Yeah. They've never charged the bikes themselves because basically Harley-Davidson developed the bikes, Rivian developed the cars, they shipped them over and then went, right, here you go. So they didn't know how to charge them. They weren't really au fait with what the range was like because they hadn't tested that. They had a, what I think is like a Mercedes Sprinter with a huge solar array on the top that's full of batteries that didn't work at one point. So at least for one of the episodes, they have to have a diesel generator on a truck to basically charge everything. (laughs) And I think episodes like two and three are really, really about the problems that they have charging. Because when you first get an electric vehicle, as I know, all you think about is charging. It's like, how do I charge? Where do I charge? When do I need to charge? Except they're doing, they're trying to do 12,000 miles on bikes that have a maximum range in ideal conditions of about 150 miles between charges. After that, so far the charging then it starts taking a bit of a back step. So you've got that learning curve that they go through, which is quite interesting, um, I think, and it, it's quite balanced. But from there, they don't really so much talk about range. It then becomes about the adventure and the journey and all of those sorts of things. That's the thing that the ads sell far more. They don't even mention the electric stuff. I'm interested to watch some of this. I, I was thinking of giving it a go the other night, but got distracted by other things. Um, <laughs> I do want to give it a try. I am an EV sceptic, as you well know, despite owning one. So I'm probably going to take some delight in seeing 
what I perceive to be all of the shortcomings of EVs <laughs> presented on screen. But equally, you know, I'm a fan of Ewan McGregor, particularly Ewan McGregor in TV presenter mode. He and his brother mm. have done some great stuff on the RAF for the BBC, amongst others, that I really enjoy. So maybe I will become a long way round up, down, left, right convert. <laughs> Never know. Have you finished watching the whole series or are you kind of like partway through? So they launched with three episodes... And they're now doing one episode a week on a Friday. I like streaming shows that do this. I don't want the whole thing dumped on me (laughs) because you'll binge it. You'll go through Mm. it so quickly. I've done it with so many shows and I prefer the tune in or you know that the show is going to be released on a certain day and you've got to wait until that day to see the next thing. Mm. It builds anticipation and it lets you go back and maybe watch the previous episode again. I really, really enjoy that. Um, so I'm glad they haven't just dropped all 12 episodes or whatever in one hit. And one thing that I would say works particularly well with this is that the first episode is all about the prep. It's all about the idea. It's all about going and meeting people and seeing things. And it's all built up. And I think if they'd only released one you'd kind of get to the end of being a bit like, uh, but having, getting a couple of steps into the adventure, it's better than say like the Grand Tour where they, they, they literally do one episode a week and it's, it's very, very singular, but then they are kind of much more standalone. They're so- more, yeah, they're more self-contained. This seems like just the right, you know, bait the hook enough to get you into yeah. it and then have you champing at the bit for the next few episodes as they come along. This is cool. I will try, between now and the next pod, I will try and give them a watch and see how I get on. And Bellstaff, if you're listening, I'm an extra large. I think Marty's a large. So if you'd large, like to send get out of here. I'm a medium. I'll take a medium, <laughs> thank you, Bellstaff. Your marketing budget must be able to support it. Anyway... Moving on to other things. Other things I still haven't seen. Sky F1 and Race to Perfection. I still haven't got around to watching this yet. I So I, uh, I've i actually given up on this. So I watched the first three. We talked about the first one, I think, in the last episode. And uh, it's more of the same. I think the second and third episode, they've added a title card, which doesn't sound like much, but it's Championship Deciders. It's, I can't remember what was the third one. It was like the great cars or something it's just enough that it gives you something to kind of go oh so this is the episode about again the re- the twitter reaction has really agreed with me that it's incredibly selective in in what it shows so when it talks about the great cars it picks i think five cars from the entire history of formula 1 and if you go great cars, well, you've got, you know, Mansell's FW14B, the active suspension. McLaren MP44, Lotus 79, Maserati 250F. Yep. You know, I haven't even named any of the Ferraris. The F2004. Doesn't have that. Which is astonishing. It, that was one of the most dominant cars ever built. The Any yeah. of the Mercedes from the modern turbo hybrid era are yeah, worth not, a mention. None of them. Um, the williams fw7 from you know their first championship winning car nope (sighs) that's disappointing because so many of us watch not just for the racing but we're also interested in the technology and we're interested in the cars five from 60 plus years of championship racing is pathetic Mm. and it, it still feels like a series of 
individual vignettes that could be dropped into any broadcast. I, if you if you want to kill some time, if there's a topic that particularly engages you, it's a fine way to pass an hour. But moving on to something that we've actually become excited about. Yeah, I was going to say we've got better things that will pass the oh, time. Oh, so have. Uh, Car Trek 2 is out. Yeah! We loved Car Trek Series 1. Um, mm. It came out just at the point during this year that you really needed to pick me up. And this was exactly the sort of thing I love. It's a Top Gear homage in the best possible way to the three amigos going and having adventures in cars only in this case the three amigos are ed bolian from VinWiki, freddie tavarish hernandez and tyler hoover or hoovy from hoovy's garage uh going and having adventures in very depreciated cars. So Series 1 was a series of supercars that could be bought for the same price as a C8 Corvette. And so they turned up in some very depreciated, very knackered old cars. Wonderful watching. I really enjoyed that. Slightly lo-fi, but worked gangbusters. Uh, Series 2 has just debuted with episodes 1 and 2 coming out this week on Tavarish's channel. Uh, The theme this time around is super depreciated supercars. So we're talking things that cost over $200,000 in some instances that have depreciated 90% of their value. (laughs) I've really enjoyed this, I have to say. I... I'm in the tank for this series anyway. I watch all three of them on YouTube anyway because I enjoy what they do. Mm. Uh, But this is just joyous to return. They appear to have a different film crew. The style is very slightly different here. So whether or not they've hooked up with a different set of of, um, cameramen, maybe a different director, I don't know. They have also used a central base location in Las Vegas rather than going on a road trip like last time. This time, I think they're doing a kind of, like the rally does, you pick a base location and you go out from that location to other things. And... It's standard Top Gear-esque stuff. Three cars, all pretty mechanically shoddy in their own ways, and (laughs) challenges happen, things go wrong. It's the joy of seeing three friends bicker and, and mock one another's car choices, and the joy of seeing what on earth Ed did to buy an Aston Martin Vanquish for $29,000. That's an astonishing deal for a Vanquish. Okay, it's very broken. (laughs) That's no spoiler. Um, But still, I mean, you can get a Vanquish for less than 30 grand. Well, you can if you're Ed Bolian and you don't mind buying one that lived in Colombia. I've got to say, having watched episode two, Ed Bolian might have a voice that's like pouring honey on a walrus, but... He cannot slide a car for love nor money. None of them. I, th- I think of all of them, Freddie Tavares Hernandez is the, is the guy who has the, the, the most leaden right foot and the most ability. <laughs> he, he seems to be the one who's most willing to lob it in a corner, boot it and hope. There's not quite booting it and shouting as Clarkson often does. There's no one screaming power, which I do kind of miss, but then <laughs> perhaps they, they shouldn't do that. That's a little too on the nose. But yes, the thing I noticed about this is, is for all that Ed can't drift a car and you know none of them can really drift a car I have noticed that Ed is extremely quick with the one-liners and the descriptions. He's very quick with the one-liners and the sort of put-downs. And I have a feeling this comes from his salesman background. I don't think these are made up or scripted. I think they just pop out 
I've really enjoyed watching this series. I don't know how many episodes there are going to be. They appear to be coming out one every other day, which means at the time of recording, there should be one out tomorrow. And I am excited about <laughs> it. <laughs> Because they're doing what I want to do. They're they're having a great time with their friends in fun cars and doubtless check engine lights are going to come on and fluid (laughs) is going to leak and things are going to go wrong and some stuff's going to catch fire. And that's all fine. It's all very Top Gear. But I love that about Top Gear. And Mm. I'm really enjoying this because as with the best of the Top Gear ones, it's three mates taking the mickey out of one another to a backdrop of interesting and sometimes desirable, sometimes broken cars. I don't know if you've seen on the VinWiki channel, there is Tavarish giving a bit of a sort of behind-the-scenes talk, which is worth a watch. And I think he said that they've got a cameraman on this one who has won a couple of Emmys for something. Yeah, and the I- production values have gone up. I like the lo-fi, run-and-gun approach of Car Trek 1, but they've all admitted that they were a bit stressed at that and it was a bit hit-and-miss in some instances and they were kind of making it up as they go along. This feels like they've planned it more, um, mm. but I'm really happy that the first one was a success enough that they could do another one and I think mm. they've mentioned that they're going to be doing a Christmas special as well <laughs> in full Top Gear tradition. So if you haven't watched Car Trek, please go and watch Series 1 and then start watching Series 2. It's more of the same, but I love the same. It's like eating a very familiar chocolate cake. You know what it's going to taste like, but you like it nonetheless. Or like warm old slippers. Yes, without the smell and the holes in the <laughs> bottom. I should really get some new slippers. Speaking of Top Gear, I don't know if you saw on YouTube this week, the Top Gear magazine have a Speed Week edition. I did, because I think you tweeted about it, and I watched half of it and went, I don't want to watch the rest of this, because I know it's not going to be a feature-length feature. This is just a trailer. They're using one of those high-speed racing drones. Yes! And so it kind of flies in and out of tents and and whizzes across cars and spins round on amazing gimbal stabilisation and so on. And that looks incredible, because you don't see that kind of thing done very often. Mm. Red Bull have done it a load with with F1 gimmicks and demos that they've done where they've driven, you know, an F1 car down a ski slope or whatever, or they've raced an F1 car with a racing drone. But I have not seen it applied in this context. And I think it looks fantastic. And I had to stop watching because I felt like, is this just it? Is this just for the promo? And there isn't actually like a a full length half an hour film that's like this. Because I would totally watch that, but I'm appreciative of budgets and time concerns and so on mean that they're probably not going to do one. I'm genuinely wondering because they've obviously gone and filmed the cars and like I say, they've sent the drone up and they've mic'd people up and they've gone and shot stuff. And it feels like... I said What I said on Twitter was that it's like a trailer for those Christmas DVDs that we used to get from Clarkson where you'd watch it basically for 12 months until the following year. So there has to be more video content coming from that, but... I really wish. Do you remember the old Evo Car of the Year films they used to do where it was like 45 minutes and Sam Riley did a... Yes, the ones that cost it. an awful lot of money and didn't bring in anywhere near enough revenue to justify <laughs> doing them for any longer. Um, yes, I loved those and I understand exactly why they don't do them anymore. But also the setup where you've got a load of people driving with tents and airstreams and stuff to Anglesey and actually sort of living there and having this thing there's so much content there because that's always that's always one thing with the evo car of the year features or the videos or whatever is that you read about these impassioned 
uh, arguments about car merits over pints in you know wherever it was at the end of the night and you kind of go that's almost the bit that I'd want to see as much as the car's moving. Particularly if you're a long-time reader or, you know, if you're a, a, a hardcore fan, as we both are, you kind of go, yeah, I I love the reviews and so on, but what I want is the whole thing. I want to be a fly on the wall when you are all arguing about the uh, relative merits of each car. I want the whole thing. And that's kind of unrealistic because if they did that, the feature would only appeal to the very few. Yes. And if they did it in a video form, it would cost so much money to shoot and edit. And that's the thing. That's why I stopped watching that Top Gear promo. I would love to be proven wrong because (laughs) it does look amazing. We will put a link in the show notes. Watch at least the first half because it's got those swooping drone shots we were talking about. It does look amazing. And Anglesey looks very good as well. It does. They've done the drone shot I've wanted to do for ages, but I've never flown the drone out there because I have a feeling you need permission from RAF Valley to do it. Yes. Which I've never got around to doing. We looked at the paperwork for the Race of Remembrance one year and it was like, speak to the military about sending things up. And we're like, let's let's just not. <laughs> let's not do that. They have weapons. <laughs> Speaking of YouTube, we're always up for ensuring that there are legal copies of things that are available. People are properly compensated for their work. And if you can support the channels that you enjoy in whatever manner you can, then you absolutely should, because I think it's important. These things aren't free to make. They take time, they take money. And, you know, we want to ensure that there is a lot more of us in the future. Now, I was watching a video from the Linus Tech Tips channel, which is a good computery, techie channel, and they were breaking down their revenue stream. Now, they have um, not Patreon. It's like a Patreon equivalent. It's another platform that does a similar thing. They have ad revenue from YouTube, as we all know if you've ever watched YouTube and clicked through the um, pre-roll adverts. But they did talk about two other things as well, which YouTube is now doing, which people might not be aware of. The first is YouTube channel memberships, which is basically YouTube trying to eat Patreon's lunch. The other is what happens when you are a YouTube premium member. Now, when you are particularly using the um, iPhone or Android app, it keeps saying, do you want a free trial of YouTube premium? And you go, no. Well, if you do, not only do you not see adverts, but the videos that you watch get a share of your premium fee, which equates to more than they would have got per view for you watching it with adverts. So... If you do watch a lot of YouTube videos and you want to ensure that not only you have a better experience because you're not doing adverts, but also that the creators are supported a little bit better, consider giving YouTube Premium a go. There is a free trial, and I think it's $4.99 in the UK a month. I realise it's another subscription. I realise it's one more thing that you might be paying for, but if you do watch a lot of YouTube... And we do. (laughs) And we do. And particularly if you don't want to start subscribing to every Patreons, but you want to try and help them a little more, consider giving YouTube Premium a go. I quite like this because I've seen those YouTube Premium things pop up a zillion times and every time I've clicked skip. But knowing that they get a bigger cut of revenue, potentially from me watching if I'm a Premium subscriber versus just watching some ads, which I will inevitably skip or get (laughs) frustrated with, it's got me tempted. And yeah, like you say, Lord knows I don't need another $4.99 a month subscription, but it's tempting if you watch a lot of stuff and you want to support creators. I quite like the sound of that, if I'm honest. So yeah, Mm. do give it a, a look if you do watch a lot of YouTube stuff. 
It's time to move on to part two of our Fast and Furious rewatch marathon. We did debate about giving this a rest, but you know, we asked Twitter and Twitter said, no, keep going, you morons. <laughs> so if you don't like it, this is your fault. <laughs> yes, please, please don't run away. Um, we're about to review <laughs> the best movie in the Fast and Furious franchise. There, I said it, fight me. I'm now intrigued as to which one of us is going to review that film. So, right, you start, because I foisted Too Fast, Too Furious on you last time, and I think it's therefore only fair that you do what I consider to be the best movie in the franchise, which is... Fast and Furious, Tokyo Drift. I love this movie. I'm, I'm going to say right out front, I love this movie. I think it's still my favourite of the franchise i've previously talked about how fast five is is overblown fun and it's the point at which the franchise kind of exploded in a different direction but this is the movie that we collectively love the most for the car culture and the driving because it's the one that makes that has sort of the least obvious reliance on cgi and has the most obvious skilled driving in it because it's about drifting mm. You've probably already seen all of this, so I shan't bore you with a really in-depth recital of the plot. It's all absolute nonsense. As with all of these movies, <laughs> we have a high schooler who looks 20 years older than he should be, but how we'll let that go. Played by Lucas Black. He's called Sean Boswell. He gets involved in one high-speed chase too many in America and is sent to Tokyo to live with his father, who is a naval officer out there. He meets someone at his new school called Twinkie, who is played by someone called Bow Wow. These are all real names. Is it not Little Bow Wow anymore? Has I don't know. I don't know. I didn't even know who's called Bow Wow until I looked at the <laughs> cast list. Anyway, this guy is like a high school fixer who sells knockoff iPods and trainers and introduces Sean, most importantly... To drifting. Sean somehow ends up in a drift race and ends up borrowing a car from a character who I thought was called Han Solo in a sideways nod to Star Wars. But it actually turns out his surname is Lou, L-U-E, Louis? Lou? Han Lou, who's played by Sun Kang. And he lends Sean a car in order to race uh, a guy called DK, Drift King. He loses and ends up owing Han a new car because the car gets trashed because Sean can't drift. Han then gets him running errands for him and friendship blossoms and so on. There's a whole Yakuza subplot. We don't really care. The joy in this movie for me is twofold. One, it builds an incredible sense of place. And they managed to do this without shooting in Tokyo all that much because film permits are next to impossible to get for Tokyo. And so they kind of dress car parks in California for the famous Shibuya crossing and they somehow make everything look as convincingly Tokyo as possible whilst not shooting in Tokyo. <laughs> but they they have such a great sense of place with this film that you absolutely believe it. And I was very surprised to find out when I was looking into it that this isn't shot in Tokyo at all. And the vast majority of it is, is faked. And it's movie magic, but it's movie magic at its best. So it evokes this tremendous sense of place. Then it is JDM as fuck. <laughs> There is so many brilliant 
JDM cars. Wait, 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 wait. Just say it's JDM as fuck again. <laughs> it's JDM as fuck. <laughs> it really is. It is. To the point where um, Twinkie is driving around in this weird K car with the uh, Hulk's fist smash in the back of it. Um, there's Nissan Silvias, there's old school Skylines, there's Nissan 350Zs, like all drift specked up with you know massive you know incredible steering lock on them everything has a vile side body kit on it but it's not horrifically neoned out in the way of too fast too furious the cars are stylized but not too much they feel authentic jdm like i said and there's such a feeling like the people making the movie got drift culture and Japanese culture at the time they made it and you know young car fans it just feels like they pitched up at a meeting of the midnight club and shot it it evokes that sense of place really well and then there's the drifting it's not just mash your foot on the throttle and if you want to go a bit faster change gear and mash your foot down a bit further until danger to manifold this is genuinely skilled drivers doing the stunts for real. There's a scene during that drift race where someone drifts up a circular car park road, you know, the kind of thing that gets you from level one to level two, and they drift all the way up. And that was done for real. And you can tell because the car comes up and it is just a masterpiece of car control. I think that was Reese Millen doing it and they didn't believe he could do it until he did it. And they were like, yep, that looks fantastic. <laughs> and it's filled with that. There's, It's a... It's like a um, a who's who of drivers that have gone on to do so many films, both in this franchise and other franchises. Reese Millen, Tanner Faust, they're all in there drifting for real. And you can see it on the screen. There's none of that horrible sort of stretchy CGI that you got in Too Fast, Too Furious or constant cutting away to disguise the fact that they're not actually going around the corners all that quickly. This looks quick. The drifting looks real because by and large it is real. Yes, there's some CG correction in it, but who cares? <laughs> I think one thing with the drifting is that They've obviously put, let's say, they've put a lot of effort into making it look right. They've got Keiichi Suchia. He has a cameo. You know the two guys fishing? Yes, he's one of the guys when, when uh, Sean is training in the, in the Evo. They're one of yeah. the t- he's one of the two guys who are just watching him and commenting, and, and, like some kind of Statler and Waldorf. <laughs> and this is the guy who basically made drifting in E86 back in, I think, the early 90s on video and, and launched all that. And the fact that they go up into the mountains, they've got the two gay roads and what have you. The I think the bit that it kind of falls down with me more than anything is some of the onboard stuff. Because you can see with some of the actors that they've got a car on a pivoting rig and they just sort of, as the car turns, they turn the steering wheel in a way that's just too serene. You know, you know that that they are just on that rig acting. They're not actually drifting. Yes, I get, I know what you mean. And it's an immediate violent movement. And then they don't move the steering wheel around in any way to kind of go, you know what, there's actual control here. However, Mm. it is still better than the muscle car lean of Dominic Toretto, who just goes, (laughs) look at my bicep as he grasps the top of the steering wheel. (laughs) <laughs> which is not how you drive. At least here they're, they're, you know, hands at quarter to three and so on. And we are that sad and nerdy that we find that thing, you know, 
actually accurate. You know, accuracy is good. Yep. There's so many great noises in this. Someone, whoever, whoever did the Foley work and recorded all the engine noises and laid them in. There's straight sixes from Skylines. There's V sixes from the 350Z. There's RX sevens. There's just turbo chirps. There's so much care was given to this movie to make sure that it it fit that culture. This came out in 2006. It was directed by Justin Lin. It was his first um, directing gig on the Fast and Furious franchise. And he went on to direct Fast 4, Fast 5 and Fast 6 before moving on to do some different things. He is apparently the director of Fast 9 and the upcoming Fast 10. So he's come back to the franchise. But he is the guy that took the franchise from being sort of street racing nerdery into the Fast Five massive action spectacle. But this is not massive action spectacle in the same way. This this is him trying to be true to the the place he's trying to evoke. And that really works for me. And I think the other thing to remember with Justin Lin is that the reason he got the gig on Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift was because he'd been seen at the Sundance Film Festival. So he's an indie filmmaker by trade, if you like. You know, he's used to small budgets. He's used to putting that money up on the screen and working in that environment. But he's since gone on, and I think he's he's done Star Trek as well as the Fast and the Furious. He did. He did the third Star Trek movie, which was really good. Mm. But there's there's other great things about this movie. The soundtrack, I think, has two absolute bangers on it. The opening, um, the opening Mostef track, immediately makes me think of drifting. And then the um, the Tokyo Drift by the Teriyaki Boys, which is the theme to Tokyo Drift, again just instantly conjures the sort of underground car park with. JDM as fuck cars lined up. I'm going to keep saying that now. <laughs> can, can I just be a pedant? Do you mean the track that opens the film where the, the, they're spraying the boy with Yes, I know paint? it's not Mostef. It's featuring Mostef. I can't remember it's, who does it. Is it? It's um, six, six Days by DJ Shadow. That's right, yeah. But yes, I love that. That makes me think of drifting and car guys doing stuff in garages and all that kind of thing. This is a small stakes film. Sean ends up having to drift for the right to stay in Tokyo with his father and DK ends up, you know, having to drift for the right to kick Sean off or whatever. I don't really care. The joy for me is the car culture that's represented. And finally, this is the introduction of Han, who is a series favourite as Drift Yoda. (laughs) He is constantly the coolest thing on screen whenever he's there he's he's tossing off bon mots and yoda like aphorisms like he's been doing it all his life he is the best thing about the tokyo drift family and then the expanded fast and furious family because nothing ever seems to phase him and he's cool as fuck so this is the movie that introduces him and then spoiler alert he dies Or does he? (laughs) One of the things they had to do when they did Fast 5 and Fast 6 and Fast 7 and Fast 8 was do some real messing with the timeline in order to keep Han alive because he was a fan favourite character and because when they brought everybody back for Fast 5, they needed a broader family gang and so they brought someone in from almost all of the movies. 
And so those movies actually take place before Tokyo Drift, confusingly, right up until I think Fast 7 or Fast 8, I forget which, whichever one it is that Jason Statham turns up. Which I'm looking forward to. Which, yeah, well, you know. <laughs> but he's so cool and he has the best car. It's an orange and black RX-7, which I think was originally built by Valside. And then the production bought it off them and, and, and used it for the movie. There's a load of other great cars in it. And of course... Right at the very end, I don't think it's a spoiler to reveal this now, there is a cameo from one Dominic Toretto, Vin Diesel himself, returned. Apparently because the test screenings for Tokyo Drift weren't very good. And so he promised to come back for no fee to shoot a cameo as Dom in return for Universal giving him the rights to the Riddick franchise. Which is pretty cool and pretty interesting. I remember seeing this in the cinema with a bunch of petrol head mates and it's not an exaggeration to say the cinema exploded. <laughs> and in the UK as well, where we are very reserved filmgoers, we don't cheer and whoop and holler like the Americans do. But the cinema went crazy when the camera reveals that it's Dominic Toretto challenging Sean at the end of the movie to um, a drag race and a, a drift off. I can't imagine Dom actually being any good at driving in anything other than a straight line <laughs> because we haven't seen him do that. But it worked so well and it made you go, damn it, they're going to come back for more, right? <laughs> and they did. Moving on from Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift, we get to simply Fast and Furious. And I think it's important that we kind of take a step back and look at the context that this film was made in. Because as a rule, in the US film system, whatever the budget of the film is, they want to make at least double that on the domestic box office to kind of cover their costs and marketing, what have you, and then sort of anything over that is is profit. So if you can at least make back your money, so that is at least double the budget, they'll let you keep making films, and that's how Kevin Smith had a career for so long. The original Fast and Furious had a budget of 38 million and we know from last episode they were buying cheap cars and it was all done to kind of keep the cost down however that made in the US alone 145 million dollars so they went right let's do another one they upped the budget the US box office went down they upped the budget again to Tokyo Drift to 85 million and they took domestically 62 million so you're at this point now where you've got a franchise that started well, but every subsequent film has made you less money for more outlay. And Tokyo Drift, although across the world... It scraped to something like 153 million worldwide. Given yeah. I've just eulogised about how much I love it, it was mauled by the critics. It's got something like 37% on Rotten Tomatoes, mm. and they were not kind, particularly not to Lucas Black... Um, playing Sean Boswell as someone who is rather too convincing about being a dumbass lunkhead. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think they really appreciated the plot because they're not JDM fans and they didn't mm. notice the JDM as fuckness of the whole thing. So when they got to Fast and Furious, the budget stayed the same. So they, they gave them another 85 million. And this feels to me like they've gone, okay, we're going to give you one more shot. We're not going to increase the budget. We're going to take the same risk that we did last time. If this works, we can maybe do more. If it doesn't, that's it for the franchise. And what Justin Lin did was, I think, really strip back everything to go, right, what is 
The Fast and the Furious, what is it that people responded to so much in that first film to the point that even the title, it's like what people want is they want fast and they want furious. So let's just strip it back down to just that. It is just fast and furious. That's all it is. And somebody kind of went, huh, that's a good idea. The film opens with a heist, which takes you straight back to the first film. It's cars stealing petrol tankers. Uh, petrol, what, what would you call them? Carriages? I don't know. Basically, yeah, two a petrol multi- tr- it's like a, it's like a, a, a semi-truck that's got an extra trailer on it. So it's a tractor trailer and then a yes. trailer attached to the back of that, isn't it? Uh, it's, yeah, it's, there's trailers and trailers. It's like a road train. And it's people climbing on the road train. It's cars taking stuff off. It's right back to the same point where Vince is hanging off the lorry in the first one, except in this case, it's Letty, played by uh, Michelle Rodriguez. Straight away we're into the action, we're into the heist. Straight away, Dom guns the charger and times it to drive under a flaming... Um, Somewhat unconvincing CGI trailer thing, yes. It's, it's, yeah, a petrol tanker that's on fire and rolling towards him and he drives under it. And from there, you are right back into street racing. You're right back into the criminal underworld. You've got Dom... You've got uh, Letty. You've got Mia. You've got uh, Brian O'Connor. The gang is back together. That's the thing that you're right about the let's go back to basics. What did people love about it? They loved the Mm. racing cars, but most of all, for better or for worse, they loved Dominic Toretto and they loved Brian O'Connor, Paul Walker and Vin Diesel together. That seems to be the hook that got people back in after the Mm. sort of decline of... Too Fast, Too Furious, which had one but not the other, and then Tokyo Drift, which, as we just said, has a cameo from Bean Diesel right at the very end, but otherwise he's not in it. So then the plot for this is following a drug lord who runs these street races to try and find drivers to do whatever it is that those drivers need to do. Drive through a mountain! literally literally drive through a mountain. That's what they do. We won't go into all that because it's absolute... (laughs) bloody nonsense but the thing is right they've got away from drag racing so they now have corners they have so much um variety in the cars as well you know there are some jdm ones there's some american muscle all this sort of thing and it, it absolutely embeds the cars into the story there are plot points that are based on how a car is modified and that's kind of the clue to something later on in the film. Most importantly, Brian's driving an R34 Skyline. Yes. Which is one of my favourite cars from the whole of the Fast and Furious movies. So the film is absolutely central to Brian, who's still with uh, the police, because this takes place before Tokyo Drift, but after Too Fast, Too Furious. And he and Dom are basically rivals trying to get to this drug lord before the other because Dom believes that he killed Letty early on in the film. Spoiler! Well, it it happens in like the first 15 minutes. Uh, And she's not dead anyway because she comes back in other movies. That is a spoiler. Much like Um, Han, who is also not dead because (laughs) as the trailer of Fast 9 tells us, Han is back and we get justice. Justice for Han. So you've got this this tension. And as we said for the first film, 
the tension between the two of them can really build. There are proper stakes involved. There are proper, I think, um, plots that go through this film that actually raise the stakes, which actually put that intensity into the film. And you have this kind of mix of the kind of the illegal meets the legal. You've got that kind of shadow area where is Brian working for the police or is he working with Dom? At what point is it personal? And Justin Lin did a an interview with the UCLA where he went where he was at film film school, and he talks about how their concept of the first film is around family. It's there are aspects to family that really come through in this, particularly the idea of sacrifice, particularly the idea of trust, particularly the idea of you might hate a member of your family, but underneath you are still family and there's still that bond between you. I think the the grading works really well to give you a sense of the different stories that are going on, particularly at first, because you've kind of got these two stories that converge when Brian and Dominic realise that they're both you know, in the race for the same job and they've both got the same idea in mind. The camera work is rather hyperactive, to say the least. To um, say the least. It's, for all that they do add corners in, there's a lot of the shaky cam. Maybe it's just the time at which this was made and the editors that worked on it, but it's it's nowhere near as clean and as easy to tell what's going on as mm. Tokyo Drift or as to be fair the latter movies where the stakes go even even higher this particularly the stuff where they're driving through the mountain in in the world's longest mine shaft is <laughs> just it's very difficult to tell what's going on i think it's also telling the director of photography from this actually went on to do at least one of the Transformers films. And you kind of go, oh. Okay. Yeah, that's very telling. I rewatched this quite recently. And I got I have to admit, for all that you've said, lots of things that make a lot of sense, I didn't enjoy it all that much. That's interesting. Go on. Um, and possibly it's because I know that the characters in it who go on to feature in the rest of the series mm. are nothing like they are in this movie. Specifically, specifically, Gal Gadot's character, uh, forgive me, I don't remember her name. She Giselle. feels, Giselle, that's right. She feels like a completely different character in this movie to the character she plays in subsequent movies. And I can, to the point where I figured that they'd just gone, well, we really like working with Gal Gadot. Let's just bring her back in the next <laughs> one as a different character and have no one say anything about it. <laughs> See, I had completely the opposite view because i right i can't remember what happens in any of the future films i have the memory of a goldfish i think i watched the one in london once and you haven't seen like the very latest ones have you so no but the thing is that i i knew that there was a point that justin then went off the rails and i was kind of bracing myself for like this being that point but actually given the job that he had to do I think this is the film, first of all, that saved the franchise. Very true and very fairly put. I had not thought of that at all. I hadn't considered that angle, and you're right. But also, I was sitting there watching it, thinking, where would I put this in a top four? Well, it's a good idea. It's a it's a good point for us to actually throw together as we go along. I think you, you, you came up with this idea of our auto movie ranking of the Fast and Furious movies as we go. So we've covered four movies now. My personal order would be Tokyo Drift, yep. The Fast and the Furious, Fast and Furious, 
and too fast, too furious. So three, one, four, two. <laughs> There's somebody who's like, how do they know my alarm code? <laughs> That's also the pin number of my bank account. Please don't train it. <laughs> See, I think, I agree with Tokyo Drift. I think Tokyo Drift is the best film for me. I think it's a very Marmite film, and I can see why some people put it very low. For me, it's at the top. However, I think I would put Fast and Furious above the original. And obviously, Too Fast, Too Furious at the bottom. There is no discussion there. See, I can see why you're doing this, because as a film, it's probably better made. It's, yep. you know, the, the, the stunts are bigger and crazier and, and the stakes are certainly higher. And I really do enjoy the sort of the, the, the brutality of the ending. Um, mm. But this is not in any way as quotable as the first one. It's not. There are no quotable lines in this. And one of the things I think that maybe bugs me about this movie is this is the point at which, for, the, for all of these movies, I've never felt like, Brian and Dom are ever on a level. They're never equals mm. in Brian in, in Dom's mind, they're never equals. They keep trying to give you that, but Dom never misses a chance to to, to kind of put Brian's driving down. <laughs> <laughs> and this is all very serious stuff I'm discussing in a stupid movie about stupid cars and stupid people who drive <laughs> through a bloody mountain. You're absolutely right about the first one. The first one is the more quotable. I think it feels more grounded because it was low budget because it was low expectation because as i said in the last one the cars feel more attainable they feel more real it is about people who go around stealing dvd players which is kind of (laughs) it's the thing that dates it the most because the cars are kind of timeless because people will modify cars of any age but when you're you're doing all that effort to steal some DVD players <laughs> and you and I could find said DVD players on eBay for a penny a time <laughs> these days. It's the yeah. thing that dates it more than any other. But I, I think that as much as I love the first one, part of that love is nostalgic. It's seeing the the, the civics go under the trailer for the first time and just go, oh my God. God, I never even thought you could do that. Whereas this is... It's better in a lot of ways. I think the... Weirdly, the corona drinking seems to have go, gone up. They seem to have made more a point of like, you know everyone liked in the first one when you drank corona? Let's do that. It's like someone went and actually forensically analysed what people liked about the first one. I and then did. made sure they hit every beat. The stakes are higher in this one. And I, I think dramatically, this is way better than any of the films that came before it because the stakes are there because spoiler alert letty dies or so we think and so dom thinks and so you've got instant stakes there because you know Mm. letty's one of the female characters in this movie who is not just a damsel in distress and actually speaking of that there is one thing that does frustrate me about this film and that is the original fast and the furious i thought handled the sexual politics quite well. And again, I know I realise these are Fast and the Furious films. And, you know, Tokyo Drift has the whole kind of Japanese schoolgirl thing going Tokyo on. Tokyo Drift is just terrible on this. There's the whole bit at the beginning where Sean and meathead frat boy at high school are competing for the affections of frat boy's girlfriend who stands up in a crop top and says, yay, you guys do a race and then you get to have me. 
<laughs> which is not a thing that anyone has said ever. No, no. But one thing with Fast and Furious, I'm being very careful how I say this, <laughs> there are multiple scenes of girls kissing. There are lots of quite slutty women about the place that they're used as sort of set dressing. They're they used are. as a marker but, of success. But that's been the case with all of... Any time there was a street racing thing, you mm. get slutty women hanging around cars. We commented on this before. Like they're never actually there in real life. They wouldn't be caught dead standing next to a neon <laughs> green um, but, but, whatever. But but in the first one, you because you had Michelle Rodriguez's character as kind of the antidote for that, you know, Mia had autonomy. She had you know, a role beyond just being a woman. Yeah, she made sandwiches. Well, th- that was her role. Was she great. made sandwiches. <laughs> you, you, honestly, this franchise's treatment of Mia is is pretty shoddy, even in the later movies. But anyway, we're not anyway. quite in agreement on the auto movie um, film ranking, but we'll we'll go with that. I I can see I can see your argument. So we're, our our second and third place movies are, are switched around, but. We're both unanimous in placing Tokyo Drift at the top and Too Fast, Too Furious at the bottom because it's rubbish. It's it's hardly even on the same leaderboard, let's be honest. Let's be honest. So we're going to keep going with this and see where some of the other movies place. I'm, for one, fascinated to see what Chris makes of some of the later movies that I don't think he's seen. We're going to keep going with this. Please do... um, Let us know if you're enjoying this or if you want us to just stop already. (laughs) We should probably add that originally the idea was this, that this would build to the crescendo of Fast 9 being out in cinemas, but as every single blockbuster that has ever been made has moved to at least 2021 or 2022, the chances of us seeing Fast 9 in a movie theatre are rapidly disappearing. As are the cinemas. As are the cinemas. But anyway, in, in happier news, what have you been watching on YouTube this week other than Car Trek? Well... I'm going to go back to one of my themes in this podcast, which is I love it when people do stuff with buildings. To wit, one of our detailing gurus has set up a studio for his YouTube channel. And this is Larry Kinsella of Ammo NYC, who we've talked about. Larry Kazilla, please, not Kinsella. Who's that? Larry Kazilla. Kinsella. Anyway, yes, that, that guy. So he's been doing detailing videos for yonks he did um he did drive clean on drive on the drive channel and drive and protect is this is the show he does now yeah um he did an awful lot on the drive channel about detailing in general and car prep in particular and has since done an awful lot of stuff both on detailing techniques detailing training and now his channel's kind of evolved into some sort of bringing cars back to life stuff, which I really enjoy, where he's asked to um, detail a car that's not moved for 30 years or a collection of cars (laughs) that have been inside barns for 20 years and have never been driven and Mm. the kind of miracles that, you know, any good detailer worth their salt will be able to do. But he has a very honest way of presenting his techniques and his expertise in a very down-to-earth way. I love watching Larry's videos and the moment they come out, I'm all over them. Now, what he's done is he's launched a second channel called uh, Ammo NYC Studio, and he has now got his own unit where he can do detailing videos, he can do detailing work, he can do podcasts, he can do all this stuff. And it's this glorious old uh, metalworking studio 
And over the course of a year, he has completely, I say he, contractors and the like, have completely gutted it. And they've refurbished the whole building top to bottom. They've put in, you know, all the equipment that he'd need for the detailing stuff. They've put in video stuff. They've put in office space. But what I love is that he's so detail-orientated that everything is important. It is that singer motto of everything is important. And my video for this week will be a um, a video he did where basically he goes through the whole process that they went through, every hurdle that they came up against, every door handle that they had made by a fabrication shop, going through every single little detail of how they did this build and why they did it and just the the effort that they go into to make sure that everything is just perfect because he's the sort of person like if i may you <laughs> fair you know if if the lights were slightly on the wonk it would just drive him insane the building has these um metal supports that go through like the main detailing area and in order to keep the symmetry they had a fake wood support made up that looks identical to the metal ones but just means that it, the whole studio matches left to right it's true I, it's an amazing space there are things that bug me about it like why isn't there a drain that's really bothers yeah. me that he washes cars and it just drains into the into the lift pans I don't understand that, but there's it's a beautiful space and it's a brilliant space for working indoors. Um, mm. You and I both know a detailer of some note in the UK, Richard Tipper of Perfection Detailing, who also has his own unit. And the difference that makes in the ability to work in all weathers without freezing cold um, hands and destroying your knees on tarmac mm. and, and paved driveways and whatever is amazing. So seeing this space is incredible and I'm really enjoying seeing the stuff that MOMIC Studio are putting out. Mm. What about your YouTube channel? So this is one that I kind of feel a bit bad about because it's been around for a while and it's just been in a blind spot of mine, which is Bad Obsession Motorsport. And it's... I'm currently very much enjoying their series where they're building a C1 race car that they bought for 850 quid. And it's essentially two blokes in a garage doing projects and making videos about it. And it is entirely honest. It's entirely what it says on the tin. They do it with humour that is funny, but without being overbearing. They do work that is, you know, it's not like everything is cut out on a flow jet machine and painted to within an inch of its life. It's the sort of stuff that somebody could reasonably do in a shed. And it's just these two guys doing these fun informative videos that are really good and just yeah i i I feel bad that it's gotten as far as it has into its life before it's it's kind of come onto my radar i haven't seen any of these i i'm i'm always hesitant to go with new build channels because i already have more youtube stuff than i can watch in 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 the time there is available to watch (laughs) such things but i am intrigued to give them a shot because I like channels where you feel like you could do the things that they're doing with, you know, a bit of time and a bit of confidence and maybe a bit of tuition. It's one of the things I love about um, Chris Steinbacker from B is for Build in Mm. that he's not 
using, like you say, huge CNC machines and so on. It's very do it yourself, learn how to do a thing, try it, fail, learn from your mistakes, go back and do it better the next time. Mm. Um, and even with someone like Tavarish, who is currently rebuilding a crashed 675LT <laughs> McLaren, and it was very crashed, and the rebuild is fascinating because parts for that are hard to come by in general, let alone in North America. And he's got a lot of work to do, and I really enjoy that. But you get the impression from watching that ultimately it's a Meccano kit, Mm. of bolts and things you know going together in that kind of fashion where if you had the space and you had the money to buy all the bits and so on <laughs> you feel like yeah I could probably do that too mm. it's not like someone's building an engine from scratch or machining new heads or something like that where you think no you need the unbelievable expertise that a lifetime of doing that will give you it feels attainable and and I I get that impression from Bad Obsession Motorsport speaking of things that are silly and enjoyable what's your YouTube pick for this episode hey you know what this is not silly this has been all over the internet and back so I'm sure everyone's seen it but Robert Kubica in a BMW M4 driving the Nürburgring this dropped did you send me this or did I just I find this you Chris sent me this so you sent me this video of Robert Kubica pitching up at Apex Nürburgring uh, which is a place we were due to go this year weren't able to go but we're going to go next year and we featured you know Misha Sharudin whose whose channel this appeared on he's been on the intermission series we've had his videos featured on this pod before he's a very engaging presenter and he basically pitches up and gets into Apex's BMW M4 and in the driving seat is XF1 and Rally Ace Robert Kubica and DTM driver and DTM driver yes sorry and many other things and he wants to take the car around the Nürburgring and he does and being Robert Kubica he does not hang about <laughs> it's a wonderful lap I don't watch Nürburgring laps anymore because there's no point that Kevin Estra lap in the GT3 RS that you can't even get on YouTube anymore for some reason that was the best road car lap I'd ever seen and I didn't want to watch anymore after that because I didn't see how anyone could make it more exciting and then the 919 Evo did the Nürburgring lap to end all Nürburgring laps where the whole thing is in fast forward and you spend the entire five minutes and 19 seconds with your jaw on the floor. Mm. However, this lap is educational and entertaining in equal measure because you're watching someone who has a physical disability. He did some serious damage to his right arm. And so, and you can see it because it's much thinner than the other hand. And yet, you know, he's still able to take a BMW M4 to its absolute limit in every single corner of a track he had previously done like 10 laps of. It's a it's a brilliant watch because you get to see what world-class car control looks like and the kind of confidence that a Formula One driver and TTM driver and rally driver takes into driving a circuit they don't know very well because they have ultimate faith in their own driving ability. That is the thing that stood out for me. He's he's driving it into corners hard on the brakes with the car absolutely a limit of its braking. And he's utterly convinced that whatever the car does, he can sort it out. And there's a moment just coming up to um, Hoact where the car snaps sideways evilly at one point and the correction is so fast and so precise. It's It's a brilliant lap for that and it is... Not quite at the limit of that car, but not far off. I don't think 
anybody other than, I don't know, maybe a Nürburgring specialist <laughs> could get round much faster. I don't know that Misha, who is a Nürburgring specialist, could get round much faster. Well, bear in mind as well, this wasn't like the, the, the Estray lap, I think, was either on a track day or possibly a closed track. This is a tourist session. So Kubitzer has basically pitched up at Apex, rented that M4 for 12 laps, and has just gone onto the track with whoever else happens to be on at the time. It's glorious. It is such a down-to-earth video. He's a great character. I was always a huge fan of his when he was in F1, and then a huge fan of his when he was doing rallying, and then you know amazed that he was able to get back to competing in cars after his accident and he's so endearing in this in this video he's funny he's articulate and he's still got it he is still such a talent it it makes me yearn for the lost championships maybe that he may Mm. have got in in f1 he had a ferrari contract in his back pocket and i am willing to bet that he would have got more out of it than even fernando alonso Mm. So if you haven't seen this, and really, where have you been if you haven't seen this, (laughs) go and watch it. There's also been a follow-up video posted on uh, Misha's channel where he talks through the aftermath of Robert Kubica beating on this M4 for however many laps it ended up being because he hired it for an extended period of like 30 or 40 laps Mm. while he was learning the Nürburgring. And they (laughs) talk through the punishment the car takes when someone at Kubitz's level puts the car at or near its limits constantly. So, you know, they're replacing all the wheel bearings because they're starting to disintegrate. All the pads are were replaced, I think, before the car went out, but they're already yeah. half-worn after 30 laps or so. They have gone through two sets of tyres, I think. Um, I can't remember the they the the exhaust was getting so hot that the rear valance actually melted and started <laughs> hanging away from the car because the car's being worked so hard. It's a really fascinating insight into what a a well prepared track day car can go through with a very handy driver who is subjecting it to repeated punishment at the car's limit. So yes, check them both out. I'm sure you've seen the first one. If you haven't, go and watch it because my God, it's one of the best Nürburgring laps you're ever going to see. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, if you're interested to see what the, the what they had to replace on the car afterwards, <laughs> then uh, check the second one out. And uh, I didn't really come prepared for a YouTube channel because, uh, I don't know, um, it's been a busy time. So I'm going to pimp Tavares' channel again, because not only is Car Trek on it, but also his McLaren 675 LT build is one of the most fascinating things in the sort of car builder YouTube realm at the moment. Because, as I said just now, it's so difficult to get hold of the parts and to know what to do. And he's got a car that's been in a really vicious accident that's needed repairs to the carbon tub and it's needed, you know, a new rear subframe because the 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 one that came with the car was so far bent out he's had to make repairs to to mounts on the engine for the water pump because it was smashed off they've needed so many new bits ordered from specialist mclaren part suppliers in the uk where he has to transfer like tens of thousands of dollars (laughs) and then hope that a big box will turn up in three weeks time with all the bits he needs in there and i'm fascinated by the process because has he got a build manual? How does he know what torques all these bolts should be done up to? I'm intrigued to see 
where this goes and how how close to stock he goes. He's already upgraded the turbos by having them rebuilt because one of them was smashed during the accident. So they've 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 been rebuilt with freer flowing, better internals, and and should make a bit more power than the the six hundred and seventy odd horsepower that the stock car was delivering. But yeah, just watching somebody take to like take to bits. Like I said, it's a kind of like a, a cross between a Meccano set and a kit car, effectively. When you see it all underneath, there's there's so many questions I have, like the the incredibly high pressure hydraulic suspension system i'm fairly sure that one of the hydraulic struts has lost pressure so how the Mm. hell is he going to get that bled and and pressurized again i'm (laughs) I'm desperate to see this stuff so if you're not following tavarish's channel then you really should be Um, there's a ton of old builds on there that are worth watching not least his lamborghini merchilago fast and furious Mm. um car but the the 675 lt has got to be the most ambitious thing he's attempted thus far definitely worth following and that wraps it up for another episode of the auto movie podcast we're going to do a little guilt minute and say if you have a chance please go and leave us a great review on your podcast repository of choice if you're enjoying the episodes spread the word on twitter tell your friends every listener is well appreciated by us we're doing this for the love of it we don't get paid so if you would like to recommend us to your friends then please do so guilt minute over or guilt 20 seconds if if anybody would like to uh, sponsor a set of slippers for marty <laughs> let us know at comments at automoviepodcast.com also hi bell staff we we aim low with our, with our sponsorship <laughs> requests we're very easy to please but yes please do let us know if you're enjoying the fast and furious retrospective if you're sick to death of us banging on about how great tokyo drift is you know you're wrong but we respect your opinion <laughs> anyway I think Chris and I both agree now that life is simple we make choices and we don't look back and we're not going to look back so we'll see you next time 